A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech the podcast that wades through the world of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm desperately trying to catch up with Michael. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Here we are again, tying in with Film 4's full Studio Ghibli retrospective this summer, diving into the library. I'm Michael Leader. I do all things digital for Film 4, and I also host the White Lies Film podcast, and I've roped in Jake to watch some Ghibli films with me this summer. Yes, finally ticking off so many films that I should have seen many times before. Uh, yeah, I produce a podcast for Curzon Cinemas here in the UK, as well as working in commissioning for short films for Channel 4 as well. Uh, now, we've had Michael's choice already in this series, which was Whisper of the Heart, uh, but this is a very special choice as well. A very special choice indeed. We're very, very glad to welcome Robbie Collins to this episode. Robbie Collins from The Telegraph, esteemed Ghibli expert. Hello, it's lovely to be here. And so your pick out of the whole library yes, is only yesterday. it's only yesterday. It's, it's like Whisper of the Heart, it's a bit of a... Creek Digger is special, you know, but we, we can. It's, it's good to have this opportunity to get stuck into one of the, I think, I mean, for me, of the studio's high masterpieces, this is the one that is probably the least well known mm-hmm. and also the strangest in a weird way, because it's not strange in terms of there being monsters and ghosts and abandoned theme parks and all this kind of thing. But the, the actual, the, the, the structure of the film is really odd. The subject matter is incredibly odd. And as an animation, it's really odd because mm-hmm. you, I can't think of another animation that tells this kind of story in the way in which Isao Takahata does. You excited, Jake? I'm so excited. I like this one a lot. So Good. let's <laughs> <laughs> so let's crack on. Um, as always, spoilers from the outset. So beware. You can pause and go and watch the film if you want to. We'll be here when you get back. Nineteen eighty-two, Tokyo. Taiko is a single office worker who takes a trip to the Amagata countryside to harvest safflowers with her brother-in-law's family. While out in the sticks, she strikes up a friendship with Toshio, her brother-in-law's second cousin, who moved back home after living in Tokyo to become a farmer, specialising in organic farming methods. Her trip brings back memories of her childhood in 1960s Japan, including her frustrations at school and her relationships with her sisters and her parents. After confronting her younger self, Taiko looks ahead to the future. 
So only yesterday, uh, this is the second film I've seen from uh, Isao Takahata, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to learning a bit more about it and uh, a bit more about both of your connections to this one as well. Well, yes, just to quickly put it in the context, this is, as you say, uh, it's your second film of Takahata's that you've seen, but it's also his second film for Studio Ghibli, uh, released in 1991 after Grave of the Fireflies a few years earlier. Um, it was a bit of a, a different sort of film for them at this point, but it was a box office hit in Japan, the highest grossing Japanese film at the box office that year. I think we can take that off for every film that we've done on this. Well, let's, let's just wait and see, but yes, uh, for, for, for everything we've done so far. Um, but this was one of those films that didn't get that international release until very recently in the States, in fact. You know, now we have Robbie Collin in the seat across from us. I'd, Robbie, I'd love to hear about your relationship, not only with Only Yesterday, but um, within your, your Ghibli love in general. Yeah, okay. Well, so I think one of the things that really appeals to me about Isao Takata's work in general is that every time Ghibli got itself into a position of, sort of commercial financial security, he would use that to work on some incredibly labour-intensive, complicated and obviously commercial projects and basically bring the studio, not tank it, but kind of bring it back down again to <laughs> earth. And this kind of happens over and over again, very famously after they did Castle in the Sky and mm-hmm. there's this big kind of acclaim of this new wonderful animation studio and look at all this great work they're doing. Uh, Takahata sunk the profits into this three-hour documentary about a, a medieval canal system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is, again, it's, 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 it's that kind of project where this was off the back of uh, the success of uh, My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, Miyazaki went on to make uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, which mm-hmm. is really the kind of film that we, we think of when we think of Ghibli. It's magical, kind of uh, young female protagonist, uh, mix of Eastern and Western visual traditions. Um, and Takahata instead was given this project by Miyazaki, who had dug up an old, uh, an old manga series about growing up in Tokyo in the 1960s and thought that, you know, this has potential as an animated film. But Miyazaki knew that he couldn't do anything with it himself. He knew it wasn't the kind of story mm. that he could, he could deal with. So he passed it on to Takata and said, look, see if you can come up with a way to crack this and make it into an animated film. And it was Takata's idea to take the 1960s story and kind of split it with this 1980s story and have uh, Taiko as a 27-year-old young woman, single woman working in Tokyo uh, uh, in in, in an office job, reflecting on her upbringing in the city and the various things that were missing from that upbringing as she was trying to sort of rectify that in her early adult life and bring in this connection with the countryside that she never felt in this this trip that she goes on to harvest these, uh, these safflowers. I know it was a very difficult film to make insofar as Miyazaki working as a producer had to do a lot of convincing people that this was going to be a commercially viable prospect (laughs) because it's the studio's first overtly adult-aimed film. You know, Mm. I think it's it's, it's what? It's a PG certificate or a youth certificate. It's not not adult in terms of adult themes, Mm. but it's for an adult audience. You know, there's a lot of uh, very talky passages in it. There are passages in it that, to me, are almost have a documentary quality where mm-hmm. you have Taiko and her, the, this gentleman that she meets up in uh, up in Yamagata, who I, I don't know how much people know about the plot of this, but <laughs> they, uh, they discuss uh, land use, they discuss uh, the impact of farming on the countryside, they talk about farming traditions and how this kind of plays into Japanese tensions between uh, the countryside and the city and, and class tensions as well. This is really the core of the reason why Only Yesterday was not available in the West, not very easily available in the West for a very long time. There was a belief within Ghibli that the film was undubbable because so much of what was going on is is dependent on nuances in accents and little social signifiers that people uh, people in the West just aren't attuned to. They thought that there's no real way to... 
to, to work out what the English equivalent of this story is. Weirdly, this is the most kind of exclusively Japanese um, project that they had. So that's why it took so long to get a, a, a viable dub going. In fact, I think they only started work on the dub after them, when Marnie was there, dub mm. was finished, which was the, the last to date uh, Ghibli features had been produced. I think to me as a Ghibli fanatic, this is one of the reasons it really appeals, is that it was the difficult one for a mm-hmm. long time. It was one that was difficult to kind of lay hands on. I have to say, the dubbed version that they, they came up with, as dubs go, is exemplary. I mean, the way that they've kind of taken linguistic nuance from Japanese and found what the Western version of that is. and then, right. and then But I'd love to know, what was your first Ghibli film that you saw? I was trying to work this out because I, the, the, first, the first Ghibli film that I saw was, it, not all of it, but it was Castle in the Sky. Right. Uh, when it was broadcast on Channel 4 during, I think it was the Christmas holidays or the summer holidays, when I was probably about eight years old. Right. Um, I didn't see all of it. I think I switched on about the time they reach Laputa. Mm-hmm. And it was the stuff with the, the robot in the garden, you know, this kind yeah. of weird, uh, gangly sort of Fleischer Brothers style mechs that are walking around and kind of tending to this garden. It was really like nothing that I'd seen ever, animated or otherwise. And that image of the robot in the garden stuck in my head. And I didn't know what Ghibli was mm-hmm. at that point. I didn't encounter another Ghibli film until I was a student. Right. So many, many, many years. And then only retroactively realised that that's what, that's what that had been. But actually, before that, I'd seen Miyazaki's Heidi, A Girl of the Alps. Oh, really? Uh, on a VHS copy right. at a friend's house. Um, when I was, I mean, I don't know, younger than eight, you know, real kind of, very, very young. And again, had no idea what it was. And only realised I'd seen that much, much later, like within the last five years or so, yeah. when kind of looking back at Miyazaki's work and thinking, I know this. Mm-hmm. It had been a series in Japan, and then it had been boiled down to a feature for the US market, I think, and released on VHS, and someone had brought it back from, like, a relative had given it something mm-hmm. for, for a present. So that was my first encounter with any Ghibli artist. But that was, you know, it was just, again, that sort of weird sort of pastoral mood that, that Ghibli has it planted a seed at that stage that this was something that you you couldn't see elsewhere. You know, mm. it was it was a very peculiar style to, to, to their artists and their filmmakers. Um, and that's what kind of, um, I think, instilled, instilled a fascination for me. Uh, the first Ghibli film that I saw, knowing it was a Ghibli film, and, like, bringing all that baggage to it was Spirited Away. Right. Um, which I saw, it was the surprise film at the Edinburgh Film Festival in 2001 or two, right. I think. What a nice surprise. I mean, my goodness, yeah, because like to see a Ghibli film on a big screen like that. Yeah. I remember it starting and people were like, oh, it's a cartoon. And then people call it these surprise films and, you know, you just, you don't know what you're going to get, obviously. But seeing that and just having those images kind of wash over you in a way that like seeing a film in a cinema yeah. does was, was just, you know, fantastic. And so from that, you kind of go back, you check out the whole back catalogue and then you realise the stuff that you'd seen that you didn't realise you'd seen. That's terrific. A bit different from Jake's first experience. Yeah, I still haven't seen joy. one in a cinema yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully I'll be able to remedy that soon. Yeah. And Robbie, we'll, we can talk about this more deeply as we go through, but you've also interviewed many of Studio Ghibli's you know, uh, key creators over yes, the years. Yes, right. I mean, basically, after becoming a film critic, I sort of yeah. realised that like, if I was going to do anything in this job, it was going to leverage some kind of way to get to know people at Studio Ghibli. And mm. so that was just a sort of a long-term project for me. <laughs> and then managed to interview um, uh, Miyazaki-san when... Um, the Wind Rises came out and went over to the studio and kind of met him in his, uh, his, his, his special kind of private house that he has that's a little bit removed from the rest of the studio where he kind of works. And a couple of years after that interview, he saw Takahata. Mm-hmm. Um, for no real reason beyond the fact that I was in 
Tokyo anyway and had kind of begged them to set something up. And then he he was officially retired at that point, right. but he came back in and we spoke in the studio library for a while. And my goodness, it was it was completely wonderful. You know, this kind of never meet your heroes thing does not apply to <laughs> to, to, to these two directors. He spared an enormous amount of time and it because it was a library, he's an incredibly historically culturally literate filmmaker mm-hmm. and he was going finding big tomes, you know, dragging these off the shelf, clapping them down on the desk and looking stuff up from, you know, artistic reference points that he had and kind of old Western and and, uh, and, and, and Eastern art. And it was it was a real dream come true. That just sounds like that's such a wonderful sketch you've put in our minds there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also what we're doing with this podcast in a way, taking yeah. off, taking the tomes of these Ghibli yeah. films mm. off the shelf and subjecting Jake to them. <laughs> I would like to know what Jake thinks of this film. Should we crack on with the review section? Let's do it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Jake, Robbie's already said this is the strange one, the, 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 the weird one of the bunch. How did you get on with this I'm, one? I'm, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, there's no <laughs> denying that. This is the one that I got most swept up into, um, just for its ambition, really. Mm-hmm. I don't think all of it lands, but I think it's so admirable. That's almost a repeat of what I said for Princess Mononoke, but that led to a bit of a downfall for that film, and there was some of that ambition doesn't pay off, whereas this, I can't help but love it that he's trying so many different things. Uh, the form of this is definitely the most experimental of any of the mm-hmm. ones that I've seen and that the more out there crazier ideas aren't even really tied to any narrative like you might think of like the crazy creatures in Spirited Away or the cat bus or something you think wow this wild imagination of the animators and the creature designers and here 
the imagination is just splitting away from the narrative and the form to just test things out. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think you can pinpoint it as this moment where two characters touch their fingers together and that gets to a close-up and it's stylized like the Sistine Chapel painting. (laughs) And the film is full of little moments like that. And it almost just kept me going because I was into the narrative anyway. I established I love love a romance. But all the while I'm... Very excited to see what's the what's the next wild thing that's going to happen because yeah. I'm into the film just as this kind of childhood memory and seeing her antics around school and then there's this one moment where she walks off down a street and then suddenly she's walking in the sky yeah. and then I'm sold and then I'm hooked <laughs> for the rest of the film. It's so interesting. I think it was on the Grey of the Fireflies episode where I said that how maybe you agree with this, Robbie. Since Isatakata is not an animator himself, he's not an artist himself. He comes from a literary tradition. He is much more of an experimental filmmaker on a film by film basis than maybe Miyazaki is because he approaches film as on a conceptual level and on an ideas level and works with different animation styles almost with each one and that's in this film that that pays off the most you have the literary conceit of the flashbacks and the the modern day you have the way that those two different periods are shown the formalism behind it which is really fascinating watching this on blu-ray which i hadn't done before you can really just see how in the modern day it's you know, very detailed animation, facial animation. Once you go back into the 1960s, you have flat colouring, uh, more defined lines, less detail, and then this sense of the landscape just fading into into blank space yes, in a way. Right, like yeah. little kind of pocket events mm-hmm. in the middle of nothing. It's like it, it, it articulates that sense of looking back. And I mean, all of us, when we look back on formative childhood experiences, they don't exist on this kind of film-like continuum of our lives. They are like one pocket instance of maybe five seconds, ten seconds, you know, a minute in front of the class when we were, you know, embarrassed or exhilarated or something like that. That is, for me, like a really perfect visual um, metaphor of how we think about our, our own pasts. And um, the, the fact that Takata establishes these two visual languages for, for past and, well, recent past, the film released in 1991 and the, the first section's set in the early 80s and then the childhood section's set in the 1960s, um, but the idea that the the two time periods can kind of have a conversation with each other visually, because they are in different styles, you can kind of flick between them and there's no confusion at all. Mm. So you'll have a Taiko walking down a school corridor in the past, and then there will be a visual echo of that in the way she walks down a train corridor a few minutes later in the present. She will be on the phone to one of her sisters in the present, and then she's suddenly back at the dinner table having a conversation with her sisters in, in the past. Mm. And because he sets out these two visual, you know, they don't clash, they complement each other very beautifully, I think. But um, because he sets that out, he can be like, you know, Jake, like you're saying, very experimental in the way that you kind of move between these two things, have two time periods talking to each other. It would be very hard to do that live action. And particularly mm. when it comes to the, the ending of the film with this train sequence. Oh, wow. yeah. Now, you know, live action and the, the children from her past, her, her old schoolmates come to kind of meet her on this train and then slightly shift the course of her life uh, or make her sort of think twice about what she's doing. You know, in live action, how do you, how do, you do that? Is it like force ghosts? How are we going to get these, <laughs> these kids? You know, it, it, there would be something kind of corny about it mm-hmm. in a way that animation just kind of solves. There's no, there's no kind of visual problem there at all. 
Yeah, I think I, I've, I said this to you, Jake, when we watched it, that that's the ultimate train scene in a in a canon of train scenes. Yes, yeah. right, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but there's something about Takahata, and it happens once she gets out into the countryside here, what I call TED Talk Takahata. <laughs> it's, and only yesterday in his film after this, Pompoko is really this where he, said, he almost stops the narrative and says, this is what interests me right now, this issue. And this one, it's about farming and the, the clash between um, this sort of, I, mean, I guess it's 1980s, but modern day urban living versus rural living. And I'm fascinated to know what you think of this, Jake, because it's yeah, suddenly well, this documentary there's, there's style. There's something that I have to ask you, Robbie, which is, are market reforms making agriculture difficult? Well, I think there's two schools of thought on the, <laughs> uh, on the issue, isn't there? Um, it's, look, I mean, it's, 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 it's exactly as Michael says. Takahata has this kind of documentary sensibility that he brings to all of his, his projects. Um, you know, even, even something as fairy tale like as the the tale of the princess kaguya his final film um there's a sense in which he's invoking old japanese art styles in the making of that film that makes you kind of he's 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 drawing a line between this kind of timeless fairy tale and these very very old masterpieces medieval masterpieces things that were you know um done uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago uh, he wants to kind of drag these things out and pay attention to them. And it's not just even in the conversations, but in the, the cutaways to people, uh, you know, stopping and starting a tape recorder, for example, in the um, the, the, the sequence in which the young, young Taiko is doing kind of keep fit classes in the summer while all her friends have gone out to the countryside to, to have summer holidays. There's this very detailed cutaway to the teacher pressing stop on the tape recorder. And it's like just to kind of register what technology looked like in those days, yeah, how, how yeah. tape recorders worked. Uh, the whole process of the safflower harvest um, mm. and uh, the, the technology around that and the kind of handcraftingness of that, you, you come away having this totally holistic understanding of how this stuff was made. Now, that's a really rare thing mm. for an animation to attempt. And something else that Takahata does to kind of enrich that is that he he will underscore it with 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 un, in, in in unexpected ways. He uses Hungarian folk music, yeah. Hungarian farming music in in this film, which is not kind of connected at all to. Uh, Yamagata, which is the sort of alpine mountainous area where where the, the countryside sequences are set. Back when he was working on his his first feature at Toei, which was um, uh, the Little Norse Prince, it was released over here as, but it was known internationally as uh, known in Japan rather as Horus Prince of the Sun. Um, that film was originally based on Ainu myth. Ainu being this marginalised indigenous people in in northern Japan. And that's a kind of politically prickly issue. And when Takata was working on it, the, the studio said, you know, we're slightly anxious about this because it could be a bit controversial. What we want you to do is tone down the Ainu-ness of this story by introducing cultural stuff mm. from around the world. Hence the fact it could be released as Norse in, 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 in this country. And I remember when I interviewed him, I said, did you not find this incredibly irritating that you're wanting to make this kind of politically charged film? And the studio kind of, said, no, you can't do this, we want you to tone it down. He said, well, at first he did, but then he realised that by bringing in other cultural tradition, traditions from the West, as well as as well as well in, in, in Japan, you kind of got this weird sort of cosmic tonal dissonance between if you had, like, Eastern buildings and Western buildings side mm -hmm. by side. The film kind of felt familiar and strange at the same time, and it would do that for a Japanese audience, and it would do that for a Western audience as well, just the inverse and you can see time and again throughout Ghibli's history they, they resort to this I mean really famously in Miyazaki's fairy tales you know he will use elements of western fairy tales and eastern fairy tales and combine them and that's why those those stories feel familiar and strange at the same time but in this one Takahata does it so subtly he will have the Japanese traditional safflower harvest 
And then by playing the Hungarian music over the top of it, it's like you're getting this sort of everywhere and nowhere kind of feel from what's going on. Like this could be, what's happening is kind of weirdly hard to place. And it gives it this really kind of cosmic spiritual quality for me anyway, mm. um, where you feel like, you, you know, you're sort of seeing something that's being depicted with incredible sort of artistry and, and care, but also is kind of slightly just very delicately removed from the real world in a way that makes you, it, it gives it this kind of transcendent quality. And it transcends nostalgia as well, because actually in a lot of those 1960s flashbacks, uh, they're dealing with pop cultural touchstones. Yeah, like well, this film the actually has dates. And so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 1966, 1982, which is for like something that I haven't seen in any of the other films. Mm-hmm. We're actually pinpointing when this story is happening. Yeah. And seeing the Beatles and seeing these cartoons. Mm-hmm. It makes it, as you say, so specific, but then in the way that it's presented in this tapestry of other cultural touchstones, mm-hmm. quite transcendent and poetic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that if, if you want to make a big generalisation about Miyazaki's approach versus Takahata's approach, if, if you, and this is, this is totally generalised, so there'll, there'll be counterexamples, but if you say that, like, you know, all of the, their characters kind of attain transcendence by the end of the film... Miyazaki's characters do it via resistance. Uh, they, they kind of push back against what's happening to them. Takahata's characters attain uh, transcendence through acceptance, not by being accepted, but by accepting who they are, by accepting their circumstances, by coming to terms with where they've come from and where mm. they're going to. Um, and that's Tale of the Princess Kaguya obviously does this in this very kind of like bracing way where it's this idea of accepting impending death and that not necessarily being a terrible thing. In this film it's it's much more domestic and low-key it's about Taiko accepting you know what her upbringing was, why it had you know it fell short in ways our friends didn't how she can kind of take control of her own life while she's here and uh, you know kind of roll with it rather than sort of pushing back and, and Takata had said when I, when I interviewed him but um, we were talking about the, the time that Miyazaki found this manga and presented it to him and he said that he knew that Miyazaki couldn't do it because he would have made Taiko more kind of pushy, more obstreperous, and it would have lost that very peculiar sort of quality of the original story, where it's 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 about kind of being at peace with who you are rather than sort of trying to take command and because that, and, that, that, and that's, run back against it. That's there in the film, isn't it? The, the, the sense that they're horrible memories that she's mm. bringing back Ooh. up, but she is she she's not traumatized by them, and she's not fighting against them. She's accepting them. Jake, what did you think of that? This emotional tapestry of the film. Yeah, well, this was something that I really, what I really loved about it is this. It's a maybe an odd point of comparison, but I love uh, John Crowley's film Brooklyn, and oh. the adaptation of the Colin Tobin novel. And although that is kind of wrapped in this romance, uh, ultimately the end decision. Uh, is about her own personal mm. freedom and the fact that you might have something romantic attached to that is like this additional bonus but that's really not what the most important thing in the story is uh, and that is the journey that I loved going on in this film. Do you, do you find this a more romantic film or more, more emotional film than Whisper of the Heart which is very similar in terms of exploring a, you know, a, a woman's uh, blossoming into who she will be in the future. I think maybe in, in its form, I do. Mm-hmm. I, there are particular moments in here that I got so swept up in. There is this, there's this moment where um, t- young Tycho meets uh, a baseball player mm-hmm. uh, in this kind of blossoming romance in the school, and he asks her, uh, "What's your favourite weather? Rainy, cloudy, or sunny?" And then she and she replies, "Cloudy." And then, uh, and, and then this leads to the moment where she walks off into the sky and then floats across this kind of 
um, amazing rain, <laughs> rainbow sky. <laughs> and I was, I think this is this is my favourite romance. I'm, I'm sorry, Michael, to well, take that from your your baby. <laughs> I've got enough love for Whisper the Heart to last everybody. I'm sure. Um, Robbie, I've not seen the dub. So you mentioned the dub earlier. This this new version that only released a couple of years ago. Yes, yes. Um, so this is the one that's starring Daisy Ridley. And it, as I say, there was a belief long held in the studio that the film was undubbable, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of internal wrangling and soul searching had to go on I believe before they wanted to press ahead with it because I mean you know it's not the most expensive thing in the world but it's mm-hmm. ultimately they need to think that there's enough of an audience out there to make you know dubbing it into English make it that little bit more accept, uh, accessible worthwhile um, and it was only after they finished work on when Marnie was there that they decided to go ahead with it I mean I think what's what's really telling about how smart this dub is is as I say a lot of the the story in only yesterday is happening under the surface in mm. terms of what people's accents are, how they relate to one another um, in, in terms of what their social class differences are, how their you know town versus country differences. Um, and if you think about how we articulate that in the UK, it is through things like accents. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be, you know, people choosing different accents is not going to be obvious to anyone who's outside the UK because they just won't know how that, you know, um, what what we would mean by that, a South London accent, what kind of, how that's necessarily loaded or a Scottish accent like mine, what what's kind of, you know, what's going on there? What's mm. it telling us that I'm not necessarily seeing right now? Um, so what they did is they had that Daisy Ridley, uh, who plays Tycho, she would sometimes adopt a Southern American accent. Right. Um, and not because Tycho in the Japanese version is doing a Southern um, <laughs> United States accent, but because when she does it, it's signifying in English the same things that Japanese Tycho is signifying in Japanese. Mm. It's, it's, it's a real kind of a... It's a difficult thing to get your head around, and it's 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 not even a question of translation because mm. it's not even like landing on the right word. It's it's talking about like how we're going to express this word and how we're going to load it uh, with a with an additional meaning through something as like tone or accent. And they worked hard on it, and it my mm. goodness, it is it's it's really it's an incredibly good dub. It's an example of of, of why I think animation lends itself to you know if a dub's done well, even in live in live action, even a good dub is is, is bad. Um, but in animation, if you can dub something well, you can have a, an experience that holds up to. And in some cases, when you want your eye to be on the animation 100% of the time, it can actually surpass watching it subtitled. It's funny, this is something we've not really dealt with so mm. far in the podcast. We've not really had time to delve into the dubs, but the, the dubs for the Ghibli films generally are very generally high standard, they are aren't very they? We should also talk about the translation of the title, which mm. the, the original Japanese title for this film is Omoide Poroporo. Um, and Omoide means memories or reminiscences. And poroporo is a kind of a um, what is a kind of an onomatopoeic sound effect word for teardrops or raindrops. So the literal translation could be something like memories plip plop. <laughs> but obviously that's not a very good film title. So they've kind of gone with this this idea that the, the, the Japanese sense of it more is like memories roll like tears or memories fall mm-hmm. like rain. And so to kind of get that melancholic kind of elegiac sense. Uh, they've they've just gone with something that isn't at all what the title is, but actually only yesterday it's got that kind of lovely kind of the past. It seems so close, but it's still gone. Idea mm-hmm. that, that that really kind of connects with it really well. Yeah, I find it interesting that you, that 
um, the, the sense that the film was undoubtable for all of these reasons because uh, I'd read and it's probably apocryphal that the reason why when a lot of those films trickled out in the, the States in the 90s and early 2000s it was because of the the the, the whole section about periods and menstruation so they thought right. we can't release this for families and children upstanding citizens yeah well that was and that's also with Takata's um, film Pompoko um, with oh exactly the, uh, yeah. the Tanuki um, mm. which is it's often translated as raccoons but it's these Japanese wild animals that are I mean they look a little bit like raccoons um there's i mean can we use the the t-word testicles okay so the testicles of these animals play a larger role in this story than you could ever imagine <laughs> and so that makes it makes it very difficult to adapt for something that looks on the surface like a children's film so yeah. again you know you've got these ghibli will kind of tackle subject matter that is mm-hmm. completely out with the purview of any other animation studio on on earth and we'll do it with with, with delicacy and, and and complexity but um, just the mere fact that it's there means that people will perhaps be slightly anxious about it. Yeah. Well, Michael, you watched this one instead of the raccoon testicles one. We so did. it's time to rank it on the leaderboard. <laughs> so, Jake, this is usually the section where you ask me to rank these films on the leaderboard, but I think since we have a a guest to the show, I'd, I'd, I'd rather pass over to them and put Robbie on the spot. And we've had six films in the series so far, mm-hmm. Robbie. Would you be able to rank these? Yes. Yes, I think so. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go with, at the top, My Neighbour Totoro, because uh, to me that is the it just exemplary Ghibli film. Mm-hmm. And then close underneath that grave with the fireflies. I just think those two are sort of monolithically brilliant and it's very hard to get around them beyond that um number three only yesterday um number four spirited away i think and then oh i don't know i think probably whisper of the heart probably but then princess mononoke is so kind of enormous and sweeping (laughs) and ambitious it's difficult not to kind of completely love that but i Mm -hmm. think whisper of the heart next yeah, great. Oh, terrific. Happy to know that I've got the same top and bottom there. Okay, yeah, good. Mixes around in the middle. But. <laughs> uh, but Michael, most importantly, it's been we've had uh, six episodes now to try and figure this one out for you. It's it's not the most exciting of uh, of, of uh, revelations. Only yesterday would would be number six, I'd oh. say. Oh, oh. I, what? But then, as I've said on every episode, it's picking between great films mm. and uh, it's only because of I, I I respect the ambition. I see it all there. It doesn't provide me with that transformative uh, escapist sensibility that nearly everything else does mm. um but jake do you have a favorite from the six uh yeah it's got to be totoro yeah t- uh, that's, yes. that's my top um and yeah we established in the previous episode that mononoke was the one that i didn't really get on with that's the bottom of the table to, yeah that was quite and that was out of all of them that was sadly the easiest decision and in between uh i'm not quite sure i think a uh, great i think Grave of the Fireflies and Only Yesterday uh, in two and three, and then Whisper and then Spirited Away. I, I, I feel like I'm banging my drum here. Whisper of the Heart is my number one uh, completely, on a personal level, really. But then I agree. I agree with you, Robbie, that Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies are so it's a monolithic pair, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And that's, that I think sounds together, like I mean, weirdly, they were, they were released on the same day, yeah, which is, yeah. is, is kind of hard, and as a double bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just like together they sum up everything that Ghibli can do that no one else can. Exactly. And then uh, Princess Monoki and Spirited Away in fourth and fifth, and only yesterday, bottom of the pile for now. Mm. Yeah. Hopefully we can add quite a number 
more films onto this list. Exactly. Well, we should say thank you so much, Robbie, for joining us today. It's a, a pleasure. Thank you. You've written extensively about uh, Ghibli over the years. Where can we find all of this? Um, it's, it's, it's all been published at The Telegraph. Um, basically, if you go onto my sort of author page, probably one in five articles there will be about Ghibli. Yeah. Or, I mean, not that many, but you, know, can, they, you, can, you can find them. Um, we'll put some in the show notes. And yeah. then there's, like a, there's a video essay as well about mm-hmm. this East versus West aesthetic as well. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of around. And you are Robbie Reviews. At Robbie Reviews on, on Twitter. Twitter that's right. yes. Well, we hope you've enjoyed your time in the Ghibliotech. The summer season on Film 4 is now drawing to a close, but hopefully we'll be back with you soon. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and Acast and let us know on social media by following Jake. That's Jake H. Cunningham. Yep, and you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. Thank you for listening. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. We record at Soho Radio. Our music is made by Anthony Ng. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe. And Steph Watts helps us out with all, all of our GIFs, images, and anything else we post online. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, and Harold Scheel. That's me. I do the voiceover for the credits as well. Hi everyone, thank you for sticking with us beyond the credits. Today's little nugget is almost phrased like a pub quiz question. What links Studio Ghibli and The Revenant? And the answer to that is Ryuichi Sakamoto, the composer who did the soundtrack for The Revenant. Before he was a, an Oscar-winning composer, he uh, was in a pioneering synth-pop band in Japan called Yellow Magic Orchestra. And actually, their song, Raideen, which I will stake my reputation on as uh, saying is one of the best songs of all time. Correct. Yes, thank you. Good. <laughs> That pops up in the background of one of the scenes in Only Yesterday, and it's barely perceptible, but if you stick through to the credits, they pop up as the first song. So listen intently, and that's what you will hear. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.